To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Uh, I got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on this week's episode, I have on Yeti's own Ben O'Brien. Um, Ben's a super interesting guy. I really enjoyed our conversation. He's he's really insightful, and then he does all these extreme adventure hunts every year. And so we dive into it, talking about his Nepal hunt for blue sheep, and um, we talk about Northwest Territories up there with Guy and I hunting sheep and hunting caribou and um, talk about uh, his Hawaii hunt and and uh, we, we've done a lot of similar hunts and and uh, just a really interesting conversation and interesting guy so I sure enjoyed it and I think you guys will enjoy it too. Uh, sponsor for today's show is Yeti Coolers. Um, Yeti is just such a great company and I talked to it about I talked to Ben about it a little bit in the podcast but I just love how they support all these these outdoor ventures and and all these. Um, great outdoor personalities that are good for hunting and, and fishing and, and for the outdoors. So they do a great job uh, of, of putting money back into the hunting community. And, and then they, they their products, um, they just have such great products. Um, I love their coolers. Course keep ice longer, which allows me to, to hunt longer on these early season hunts as I can keep my food longer. If I harvest a buck, I can keep the meat cold in there. Um, so, so that's been awesome. I always mention the locks on the Yeti cooler. Uh, you throw a lock on either end and it counts as a bear proof container. So you no longer have to hang your food up in a tree, uh, or worry about a bear getting into it in your truck or, or getting written a ticket because, um, your food wasn't cared for right as you can't leave just normal coolers out when you're camping. So, um, that was an, uh, an awesome feature that they added into those coolers that I really like. And then, um, you know, I, I've been using their cups. I, I love them for work and um, fishing recently here, steelheading, keeping my coffee warm all day. I've got a new Yeti thermos that I'm loving on. So just great products and a, and a great company. And uh, I, I'm so thankful that they um, support the podcast and, and sponsor the podcast. So um, thanks to Yeti. Make sure to go check them out, guys. And um with that, let's see what do we got going on over there at Eastman's. We're we're pumping out these magazines, of course, one every month. Um, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal is every other month, and then the Eastman's Hunting Journal is every other month, which makes twelve issues a year. Um, got some some great information coming out in the MRS, uh, just about hunting other states. I'm I'm just getting really excited, putting in all my applications and um, seeing what I can draw and and what adventure hunts I'll be going on this season. But uh, it, it's a huge asset to be able to look in that MRS for for information on on hunting out of state or even in your own state. You know, I learn things when I get my MRS about Montana and and about trends of units and um and where the big ones are coming from so uh, awesome information in there um we also have uh be on the lookout we mentioned it in this episode uh but yeti has a film coming out where uh, they went up and filmed a guy shooting a doll sheep and then ike shooting a caribou and then ben o'brien also shot a caribou up there uh, i'm not sure if his is on the film or not but um 
sounds like those guys had an awesome trip and I can't wait to see the footage of that. And then make sure to check out that Beyond the Grid. Those guys are really putting out some great episodes. Um, right now, they just put up that uh, Tajikistan Marco Polo hunt with uh, Guy. Um, what an awesome hunt. We had that podcast a couple weeks ago about it, but um, just an unbelievably awesome hunt. And the one before that w- was really good as well. Dan Picard hunting uh, wilderness elk in grizzly bear country. So just just putting out some really good episodes. Um, I gave Dan all my caribou footage from this season. I have a bunch of really cool footage put together. So I hope he's going to gonna put me together an episode of Beyond the Grid too. So I'll let you guys know about that. But make sure to check it out. Uh, putting a lot of hard work into that and it's, it's really turning out well. And um, with that, let's, let's get this conversation rolling. So um, me and Ben O'Brien, uh, Eastman's Elevated, here we go. Okay, I'm here with Ben O'Brien from uh, Yeti Coolers. Ben, thanks for taking the time and being with me here. Brian, I appreciate it, man. It's good to be on. Yeah, uh, you've had a busy year. Um, so you work for Yeti, and uh, gosh, you've been on a bunch of adventures I've seen through your social media this season. Yeah, yeah. I'm lucky I work for a company that would allow me to, to do those things for sure. Um, it's part and parcel to just identifying places and people that we wanna who we want to go out and spend time with and go in and doing that. And luckily for us, um, those places and people are awesome in both accounts, especially this year. Well, yeah, and I um, I just love your guys' brand and your business model as you put so many of your guys' proceeds back into to really cool projects in the outdoors. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's, it's about being a part of the community. I mean, we are a pretty rare bird, as in we're, uh, we started in hunting and fishing. Our founders uh, created our the the first coolers to solve the issues they had in the, their hunting and fishing pursuits. Um, and being a giant company as we are now, or a growing company as we are now, um, you know, we grow into the outdoor lifestyle. We'll always have the core beginnings of hunting and fishing. And there's not a lot of larger companies or corporations out there that have those types of beginnings. I mean, a lot of, a lot of companies might jump into the hunting space to sell their product later on once they've identified the market. Um, but we'll always have, you know, through our founders and what they, they stand for, always have a connection to hunting. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and uh, fishing as well, like you stated. I love some of your guys' fishing films. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that really was one of the reasons that the first Yeti was was created because Roy and Ryan Cedars, the two brothers that founded the company, um were doing a lot of flats fishing for reds on the Texas coast and they would stand on the coolers. Uh, at that time they were, you know, Coleman's or igloos and, and they were, the lids would cave in, the handles would break, the lids would snap off and they had to, you know, bungee cord, um, a piece of wood to the, to the lid so they could stand on it to cast from. Um, and so they started seeking a better, a better way. And that's what, what led to Yeti. <laughs> so, uh, Yeti was originally a casting platform. At, at some level, yeah. Some <laughs> obviously, obviously, those coolers went in the back of their trucks and, and on the ranch and their whitetail hunting and all that stuff too. But yeah, I think originally that's the the photo that we all see internally at Yeti of Ryan Cedar standing on top of this, yeah, I don't know, nondescript cooler with you know a piece of wood nailed to the top and a bunch of bungee cords strapping it down. Um, 
you know, that's kind of the idea where, where Yeti began. Yeah, well, and they just uh, revolutionized, um, uh, you know, the the outdoor world for us fishermen and and uh, us hunters. You know, I know for me, you know, I can I can keep stuff longer. Like I can I can hunt for a week and keep my ice longer and keep all my food cold, so I can continue to be out there. To where with the old style coolers, I could get you know even out of block ice, I would get three days out of it, and I'd have to make another run to town to keep hunting. And and, and along with that, um, you know, keeping game animals uh, cold you know during the days i can ice them down in that cooler and it keeps ice longer you know that way i can keep hunting if i'm with a group of friends and i and i always i i love how you guys made those bear proof containers and so they qualify as a bear proof container in our national forests and so um before you had to hang your your food up in a tree or you had to get a bear proof container but your yeti actually counts as a bear proof container you put a lock on either end and, and then you don't have to worry about your food it's all locked up in there so along with the casting bow you guys have done a lot of other neat things with those uh yeti coolers yeah i mean that's you know now that we're um growing into more of the outdoor lifestyle products so when we just launched uh the yeti hondo base camp chair and yeti loadout bucket and um things that aren't insulated and starting to get into just more of a, a lifestyle. We always call back to just solving people's problems. And then that first solution was just a tougher product, a more durable, simple product that was built for uh, people that go outside and do crazy hardcore things. And that's what kind of what Yeti's ethos is. And it's, it's um, yeah, maybe it's a premium product, but moreover, it's just a durable product and it's a product that will last for a long time. Uh, we all you can go in your garage and a lot of us have a stack of 10 buckets with broken handles and cracks down the center and a stack of lawn chairs in the corner with busted out bottoms and, and broken legs and things like that. So, you know, at, at some level, the idea of the cooler being durable and bear proof um, extends in a lot of ways that we live outside and things that we do. So that's kind of what we. We hope to bring forward in the years to come is just the idea of of what that product means uh, and what it could mean in other venues. Yeah, and um, you said it well. It's such a, a lifestyle brand, and all you guys are are living the lifestyle and and supporting people in the outdoor industry that are living that lifestyle. That's what I like so much. And I I just saw that you guys released the new film, um, and it was a hunt that you went on, uh, Cole Kramer, and you guys went to Nepal. Yeah, yeah, we went over to Nepal. It was last March, so not quite a year ago. Um, it seemed like this time last year we were just trying to uh, come into the realization we were actually going to go do that crazy adventure. Um, but yeah, that launched um, this week here. Uh, we launched it at Wild Sheep uh, last week, the Wild Sheep Convention, and we'll be showing it again at Western Hunting Expo here um, next week. So yeah, we're excited to see it see it come alive. I mean, that was a trip that um, Cole Kramer brought up to me around shot show time last year and, and just uh, as a dream hunt of his, you know, just be partly because it's one of the toughest hunts in North America. I mean, you're, you're getting up upwards of 16,000, 18,000 feet when you're, when you're in blue sheep territory. And then, um, really just because he had respect for a lot of old hunters that he'd talked to that had been there and, and read some books, um, about the pursuit of blue sheep and, and just was a dream of his and presented it to us. And, and I thought, well, you know, we can try to help Cole get there. I'm not sure how much, how involved we can be. Um, but we happen to have a climbing ambassador and filmmaker by the name of Renan Ozturk, who is, is 
renowned in the climbing community. He's climbed Everest many times and summited Meru and, and um, put together a pretty famous documentary with Jimmy Chen and Conrad Aker about that um, summit. And uh, he got excited about the idea. And, and when he got excited, um, I knew we had to do it because he would be able to tell that story, the story of that hunt in, from the eyes of a non-hunter, somebody that is respected in the outdoor space, but had never been hunting, never filmed hunting, um, and but had been to De- Nepal dozens and dozens of times and was connected to that place and those people. So we're proud of it. I'm very proud of it. I think it'll do well to speak to the outdoor recreation community and, and, and tell them what hunting is about and why we care about those types of adventures. Yeah, it, um, just everything I, I've heard you describe it before, and I, I saw on your social media feed. But what an intense hunt! I mean, Cole Kramer—he's as tough as they come. You know, he's a guide on uh, Kodiak Island for brown bears, and 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 pushes really hard. Um, but it's like that elevation, sixteen to eighteen thousand feet. I've only hunted in thirteen to fourteen thousand, and I really feel that elevation, like that sixteen to eighteen thousand in Nepal, a different country um what an insane adventure and you got to go on that hunt and participate in it yeah no and then that hunt you know the hunt for us was about cole and about his experience um and i was just lucky to go along to to ride along um and also had a sheep tag which was great um but yeah that that hunt was about him and and really you know here's a guy like you said who's, who's tough as nails who's been through many many kodiak island winters and and you know, packed out many thousands of pounds of bear meat and hide <laughs> in his day. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that you just, when you get there, you realize that the elevation, is, it really is not to be messed with. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something that your body takes lightly. It's not something that your mind takes lightly. I mean, it is, um, you know, maybe not the most physically grueling hunt because we did spend a lot of time on, on side hilling on these, um, you know, pretty ancient, goat trails um so we weren't doing 2,000 feet every day but you have to you know take your time and acclimate and understand that your body's going to be wrecked by that elevation um and we went through some pretty i would say pretty harrowing stuff there i mean there was you know definitely not a whole lot of comfort after we left base camp at at, you know 11,000 feet or whatever it was we we suffered for the better part of a week before we got what we we came for so Hopefully that suffering comes through, but also what that suffering provided us, which was perspective and and the idea that that place and that pe- those people that that live there and work there and hunt there have a soul that that is undeniable and and have a have a uh, perspective that is undeniable. I mean, we were of course over there in our Italian hiking boots with our Sitka gear and our Stone Glacier packs and all this really fancy. Uh, expensive hunting gear and our trekking poles and such. And they were there with flip flops on and <laughs> flip flops, huh? <laughs> yeah, flip flops and like trash bags inside of sneakers to keep their feet dry and like a sweatshirt. And they, they carry um, all your gear on baskets that are strapped to their forehead. Uh, and I'm talking a hundred, 200, 300 pounds. Um, and they walk for miles and miles in this gnarly country. Uh, and so every time you think you're hardcore, every time you think that what you're doing is so impressive and that people back home will be amazed, you look over and you see one of these guys and you realize how spoiled we are and how, how you know, our perspective is probably uh, 
<laughs> a bit skewed by the environment in which we live here in America. So it was great for that reason. I think Cole and I both came back with a different perspective on hunting and life and just, just you know, that we should be happy and, and, and lucky to do what we do. Man, that's so wild. Um, yeah, what great perspective to bring back from a hunt like that. And, um, you know, those those hunts or the hunts we do, you know, a lot of these mountain hunts and uh, above tree line, these these alpine hunts, um, they are, you know, physically demanding. But then you throw the elevation on top of it and then being sick. And then, um, you know, it's tough enough to push hard when you feel good. Like when you when you feel bad or your, your body's giving out on you, that's that's got to be a whole different beast. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, we all got sick. I mean, I think just going over there, you really can't drink the water uh, or shouldn't drink the water. And uh, there's just so many contaminants in the air and the water and everything in the food um, that would make you sick. It's hard to get out of Kathmandu without having some sort of issue. Um, it's just really tough. Uh, the environment is just so you know harsh, even in, in that city. Um, with the dirt and the dust and just it's just it's uh it's a gnarly place and then you get into the mountains and then you have to deal with the elevation and you know we all were uh at base camp this is a little village called dule yarsa um probably about a dozen people living up in the middle of really nowhere i mean it was six days walk from the nearest road they told us and um and by road i mean it, it barely would be described as something you could drive on and so, they, you know, these people live in, in abject poverty in the middle of nowhere. And um, we ended up in a, a little hut, stone, mud hut with a tin roof with a, a family of the relatives of, of one of our main guides. And we were sitting around the fire and they were telling stories about war and poverty and, and the, you know, the civil war they had had there and the earthquakes they had had there. And we were listening to this via translation. We were all kind of sucked into the stories that were being told and we all um they were passing around a, a cup we were all drinking from that that had moonshine in it uh, or what they call roxy i don't think at the time we were smart enough to think like i wonder if we should drink this because we all drank it and then pretty soon the next day we were all sick i mean we all had every every kind of sickness you could imagine um and a lot of everybody got sick on the first day i stayed healthy on the first day and then when we got into the the tougher part of the hunt, the acclimation part where we were really gaining elevation, I got sick then. So I think I got it a little worse than other folks. Acute mountain sickness, which was, uh, I had some hallucinations. I had some dizziness. I had some um, nights spent in the tent and some nights spent in the, <laughs> in the uh, latrine. Like it, it was a, it was a rough one. I think I lost 18 pounds and anybody that knows me knows I don't got that, that to lose. Oh, brutal. Uh, hallucinations, huh? So um, it's weird when your mind starts playing tricks on you. Like I've had it like in uh, ultra marathon runs before where I, I run until I hallucinate. And maybe it's the lack of sleep or the exertion, but it's weird when your mind starts playing tricks on you like that. Yeah, and that's the first time I have had anything like that in my life. Um, and so I didn't I, – I, you know, I the only thing I knew to do was – Stay positive and try to get some levity to the situation, make jokes and and try to just, you know, stay myself and not completely lose sight of, you know, the fact where I was and what I was doing. But, yeah, I mean, we saw um, the first real summit that we went over and down into this valley to go to, to set up camp for the second day. Um, 
we summited and I, I was standing in the snow and we had a bunch of mules that were packing a lot of our gear and they got stuck in the snow, snow pass. Um, and so during this time we were waiting for them to get unstuck and get turned back around. Um, I just remember feeling dizzy and then remember being in the snow um, and not really knowing how I got there and looking up at the sky. And then from there it was a struggle to get to camp. And then along the way I saw, a wolf that wasn't there and then a baby that wasn't there. <laughs> uh, and just, you know, you just feel like you're, you know, I remember, I remember walking and not really being able to feel my feet touching the ground at some point. Um, but luckily, luckily we had a medic and um, an interpreter slash producer named Ben Ayers, who was just an amazing human. And um, he stayed back with me while everybody went ahead to camp and just kind of walked me through it. And, you know, said, hey, look, we have diamox for you to take. This is an altitude situation. If it gets worse, we can have you helicoptered out of here. Um, uh, you know, kind of put me at ease and and helped me get to camp. And then once I got there, it was just a lot of sleep and a lot of rest and a lot of, at the end of the day, just determination to, to do what I came there to do um, and get it done. So, yeah, I think all of us had some sort of sickness during this trip. Mine was a bit, it was a bit unique. Oh, that's wild. Um, yeah, and and it seems like when you're having those hallucinations, at least my experience is like you're almost losing touch with reality. Like you can't wrap your brain around it when you're when you're seeing things. You're kind of in a fog, and then all of a sudden you're in the snowbank, and you're you're missing sections of time. It, at least that's the way it is for me. It's not like you just have this sound mind, and all of a sudden you have this vision, and then you're able to to tell your you know. I guess you're I'm able to realize that it is a hallucination, but it's just my mind is really in the fog is that how you were when you were seeing babies and wolves up there yeah and I, I just i remember it wasn't like you know especially with the wolf it wasn't a situation where i looked over and looked back and it wasn't there i mean i kept looking and looking and looking so, and i was studying these things that weren't there so i was definitely in my own mind i mean i wasn't completely out of it but i also understood at some level that this wasn't you know i knew that this was a possibility and i knew you know altitude can do many things to the human mind and body. So I knew that, you know, at some level, like if this is happening, if that wolf really isn't there, um, I knew what the outcome might end up being if I didn't, if, if you didn't take care of it. And so you had some, I had some perspective on what was happening, but at the same time, when you see a wolf, you see a wolf. I mean, there's not a whole lot of, you know, there's not a whole lot of anybody at that point that can talk you out of what you're seeing and experiencing. So it was interesting and it, it, it was scary at times and at other times it was it was you know you gain perspective from that and and just push harder and that's what i just continue to try to push hard and get to what we came for and we ended up getting the sheep so um it was good and then really it was more about cole getting his sheep and his experience which he, he did in spades too Man, um, such great mental fortitude. It seems like attitude controls so much, and and just keeping that positive attitude like you did, and then being able to joke about it. I I always find like um on tough hunts with buddies when we get in bad situations, like the more you can joke around about it. Um, and uh, like it's it's kind of a a dark funny, but it helps you kind of deal with the trials and tribulations that you're up against. And and those hallucinations. Back to that for a second, like um. You say you're really seeing it. It almost like your brain sees something and turns it into something else. Like it'll see a tree or a shape, and then it turns that into the wolf, or it turns. At least it seems that way for me when I had those things. 
Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, there's like a wolf looking rock over there <laughs> and you look over and but in your mind, you know, your mind is isn't processing the world the, the way it should. So you're you're looking at something and your mind is creating the illusion of something else, um, which is which in and of itself is it changes your outlook on on what you're doing. You know, at the time, I just remember thinking, man, what an adventuring a-hole you are coming over here. You live in Texas. You know, you live at 200 feet above sea level and you think you can just come over here, and walk around in the Himalayas and you're going to be all right. Well, here you, you know, it's your fault for, for thinking that you could do that. But then that thought turned into, I'm going to do it just because it seems so uh, preposterous that someone like me who lives in a place like Texas or, you know, who's never been on a hunt like this could do it. That's the reason I'm going to, and I'm going to turn, turn whatever suffering is involved in this, um, into a positive. And, and if you can do that, which I was able to, if you can do it, um, the perspective you gain on the backside, you know, when we were coming down off the mountain back into base camp, that was the best feeling I've ever had. So, um, you know, I think if you can tough through those things that you're talking about, and push your mind to places it maybe never thought it could go or push your body to places it certainly never thought it could go, then then the rewards of that are are just immense. Oh, well said. What a neat experience. Um, yeah, and that elevation sickness, like talking to uh, Guy Eastman and Dan Picard, they did Tajikistan this past season for the Marco Polos. And yeah. um, up there they were saying that, that the the younger you are and the more fit you are the 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 more the elevation affects you and i would think it'd be the opposite i always train like a madman for my high elevation hunts um but they were saying that that those are the guys that are affected the most by the altitude something about um what is it, the blood being thinner did you did you hear that or get that warning when you guys went over there i don't know that i got it in that way but i did get the hey you know especially edema's a cerebral pulmonary, in this case, um, cerebral edemas, those types of sicknesses uh, and occurrences are just, there's no predictor for them. I mean, you could be the most seasoned veteran climber um, or a rookie like myself and get it um, and have that happen. I mean, there really is no predictor for it. Um, there's no chemical predictor for it. There's no way that I believe we've found to, to, to say, well, if you do this, you might avoid that. Uh, if you train this way, you might avoid that. I mean, I, I think we know now that there's medications that can, you know, if you cycle them through before you go, like Diamox, if you cycle that through before you leave and have that in your system when you're there, that helps. Or take it when you have those types of issues, um, those things that help. But I don't know that there is a predictor, which makes it even worse. Um, so you could be the most in shape climber, and next thing you know, you could be completely out of it mentally. I mean, there isn't any um, any way to know. So that's, I think that's part of the inherent danger. And I'm sure that people that are after those dangerous and unpredictable experiences, this is one, <laughs> this is one at the top of the list, man. Um, how cool. Yeah. And that's what happened to Dan. He was affected with it and, and had to stay in camp for multiple days and started coughing up blood and got really sick to where they, uh, had to bring him down to lower elevations. He wasn't able to film the hunt guy had to have his guide film the hunt up top, but yeah, he was in really bad shape before he recovered and got to the other side. And Dan's just in ripping shape. I mean, he's made for the mountains and hunts all fall long, but, um, like you say, there's no predictor to it. It can, it can get 
anybody, but um, man, what a wild experience. That is so cool. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's just, you know, the experience I came away from it and probably more, you know, more just shocked at the culture and the people and their spirit, you know, and then kind of what you learn. We say we wrote a little bit in the promo stuff for the film that, you know, it's a hunt that that's more about life than death. Um, and I think people that maybe don't understand hunting or aren't educated in it focus on the death part. But when you when you go and do something like that um, and you allow it to you allow the experience to be the primary focus as opposed to the end goal, which is the sheep, um, you learn things about yourself, about wild animals, just about people, about people's spirit and about you know people's expectations for their own lives. I mean, you learn you learn so many things if you allow yourself to. And I think if 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 folks out there, you know, that are hunters get so wrapped up in how big the ram is or or where when they're going to get the ram or where the ram is when they're out there, you may miss some of those things. So I had a great I have no background with blue sheep. In fact, I didn't really know what they were until they they asked if we wanted to go and, and try to find one. Um, and so I had no vision of what kind of sheep I wanted to kill or no goal um, to be in any sort of record book or anything like that. I just wanted the experience and I thought, um, you know, hunting that animal would allow me to appreciate it more and appreciate where it lives and the people that are around it um, and respect it. So, I mean, it, and it did all those things for me. So uh, we came back with adventure and uh, new knowledge and respect for that country and just a desire to, to get back there whenever I can and, and, and do it again. It, that's something I'm working on as well. I'm so goal orientated, and I I set these goals. Uh, you know, and and the fun of it is the hunting. But you know, you train so hard, and you shoot your bow all year long, and you're getting ready for this adventure hunt, and you want to be successful in the end. But but these last few years, like just embracing the experience and having fun, no matter what happens, day in day out, and enjoying the time you have in the field. I, I mean, that's really what's important. And it, and you. You know, it sounds like you come, you came back from this hunt. Like I come back from a lot of my grueling, tough hunts, where you you learn something about yourself as well, um, and, and you bring that back and and carry that with you throughout life in different endeavors as well. But um, I, I know that's you, you know a lot of these tough hunts I've been on it have made me into the man I am. You know, but embracing that experience is so important, and and uh, I. I you did that well, especially the way you articulated. Uh, it, it sounds like you embraced it to the fullest. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember a particular moment when I got back to to the real world there, and, and I was in Austin and driving to work maybe for the first time after I was had been gone for some weeks doing that trip and sitting in traffic or somebody cut me off, and my first initial reaction was to be mad, and then I remembered you're in a car you know, it's cold, it's warm outside. You're in the air conditioning. You're wearing, you know, nice clothes and you're going to an office where you'll sit in the air conditioning and type on a computer. The people that you just spent time with are probably chopping down a tree that they've been, been working on for about six months uh, just so they can have heat. And they've never seen a car. <laughs> they've never seen um, a computer and they don't have that perspective. And those people are um, happier you know, without any existential issues just to deal with than, than, than we are at some level. So I took that away more over than anything. And, and when I look at that sheep on my wall, whenever it gets there, um, I'll remember that hopefully and not um, how good of a shot I am or what kind of 
shot I made or anything like that. Not that that's not important because that's, you know, you need to have those skills and focus on those to do to be successful. But this particular hunt, I mean, I think it was just broken down for me in a way that, that uh, you're just able to see it for what it was for the whole picture. And that made it, <clears throat> made it a great journey worthy of, you know, hopefully worthy of this film. Yeah. And, and when you, you, when you conquer obstacles like that, you gain that perspective, you, you do, you come back to everyday life and, and pretty soon somebody cut me off. It just isn't that big of a deal. And I'm not going to allow myself to, to be upset. Like I can see the bigger picture of things. So yeah, what great perspective to bring back. And what's the, uh, the film called? And it's, it's out now, right? It just came out a, a day or so ago. Uh, yeah, it came out yesterday. Uh, it's called A Hunt. So uh, just kind of a nondescript name. But, yeah, it from director Renan Osterk of Camp 4 Collective. So it's on Yeti.com. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's, you can find it on Facebook. Um, pretty much any Yeti venue you can go to and, and, and find it. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to check it out uh, this afternoon when I get a chance. But, uh, yeah, how cool. And then you, you went on another adventure. Um, you had a busy season, but you went on another one with uh, Guy and Ike Eastman where you guys went up to Northwest Territories and hunted some of that same country that their grandfather, Gordon Eastman, hunted. Yeah, yeah, what an adventure that was too. Yeah, I would have, you know, both once in a lifetime. Happened in the same year, but yeah, that was that was great. Uh, it will be another Yeti film, hopefully. Uh, it'll be coming out here very soon on the heels of this Nepal film, um, where we really at Yeti respect, you know, Guy and Ike and the entire family and what it means to to um, run a business that they've run and be the, the figures they've been in the hunting community. So we wanted to take those um, old films that that Gordon made and. And all that footage and kind of unearth that and connect that to, to Guy and Ike and, and Mike and their family. Um, I find I found that to be a hugely compelling story. And um, to go up there and hunt that territory. I mean, where we landed in, in camp, there are Canal Outfitters in the territories. Um, we landed and, and the cabin that was the cook cabin um, was, was helped build. Gordon Eason helped build it. Uh, yeah, 50 years prior, I believe, if I'm getting my years right. Um, and so that was kind of our first, our first um, idea that we really were making connections here. I mean, there, you know, Guy and Ike's grandfather was in that place 50 years prior um, and helped pioneer hunting in that area. And they they were able to both go and hunt. And Guy took a nice uh, sheep on the same really the same ridge that his grandfather filmed a sheep on um, 50 years prior. And, and, and Ike was able to take a caribou in, in some of that same country. So um, we have what a trip that is and what special country that that is. And uh, no wonder Gordon was so in, infatuated with it. It is just amazing. Oh, it is. The, the pictures are breathtaking and I haven't been to Northwest territories, but I've spent some time, you know, in Alaska and in, in the Brooks range and, and, uh, the, the country is so, so isolated, so remote. It's wild to be in those, those huge drainages or basins and, and look around for miles and miles and just know that there's no roads, there's no trails, there's no humans, there, there's nothing. It's so vast. And that, that feeling, um, it, it's, you know, I've been back in the, the wildernesses in the lower 48 and the biggest ones they offer, but that feeling up there is, is just a, 
it, it's different. It's um, it, it's so vast. It it almost uh, it it almost blows your mind to, to look around and just know that there's no human activity anywhere. But uh, what a fun hunt! Yeah, I mean, going up there, you know, you get you you spend two or three days getting just to, um, you know, base camp. You get up there and you're you're going from Yellowknife up north and we had some weather and we got stuck stuck in the territories for a while and finally made it to base camp and in the time it takes you to get there you realize um in that time how far north you are and and maybe at, at the same time you realize how rare a feeling it is to be in that country and to know that there is no civilization that that this is hundreds and thousands of square miles of wild creatures and wild mountains and just places that that folks rarely get to see so you feel privileged in doing that for sure but then then when you get there and you see that um you know you're you've got grizzly bears angry grizzly bears rolling through river bottoms and big canyons and shale rock cliffs and sheep and caribou running around you realize that you know as a hunter that that is is one of the best destinations in the world and and hopefully Every hunter gets to see, you know, some part of the Brooks Range or some part of the Northwest Territories there because um, it is an important thing to see. That's for sure. And important to the Eastman family. Yes. Uh, those Eastmans are pretty fun to hang out with, too, aren't they, Guy and Ike? They're a riot. Jeez. Yeah, our bellies hurt from laughing when we were done with that. <laughs> like, I literally, my cheeks hurt. We would be stalking a caribou or something, and then my belly would be hurting just from the, the number of laughs we had. Tent, you know, <laughs> tent, tent jokes and different things that that we that we said when we were there. But um, yeah, what a great we had a great crew. Our filmmakers on that trip were were fantastic. Um, and yeah, I can't wait for for everyone to see that. And again, the, you know, our filmmakers there, uh, Bed Knight and Travis Rummel, um, are non are you know have hunted once in a while, but they're definitely not a part of our community. I mean, they're more a part of the outdoor recreation community and they're, they've done a lot of films for Patagonia and brands like that. So those guys were, again, just like Renan Ozturk, um, were, you know, virgin to filming hunts and had never done it and were interested in it and, and very talented in their fields. And, um, we hope that their new eyes on hunting will be able to help tell the story in a way that maybe we wouldn't see with our eyes since we're so passionate about hunting and, 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 and see it in a certain way. We see it, you know, see it as hunters, but these guys see it as, as storytellers. So hopefully that will help the story uh, along. But yeah, I can't wait. That'll be out, you know, probably in the first half of 2018 here. We've seen a few uh, initial clips of it and it is fantastic. Oh, I can't wait. That country is beautiful up there. And that doll sheep that, uh, that guy harvested up there, what a beautiful ram. I just uh, a full curl plus and good mass and what a beautiful specimen. Yeah, just a once in a lifetime ram that one. Yeah, and so happy for Guy. I mean, they worked for it. They worked hard for it. Um, I wasn't with them when they they killed the sheep, but we had, like I said, many laughs over the stories, and just and you could see it on their faces when when I got to have them in camp after they killed the sheep. I mean, you could tell that that was a day that that wore on them, and they earned that that experience and earned that sheep and. I got to eat some of it myself and, you know, have that experience with those guys. And I know um, those guys would never talk about themselves and brag about themselves, but they're not only good hunters, just good people. And um, 
you know, they care about the right things and, and, and do it right. So I was very privileged on that one too, just to be along, be a part of, of that story. Cause it, it is a good one. Absolutely. And then, and then you got to hunt caribou as well, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I hunted caribou. Um, we spent about two or three days running around on our, just with me and a one guide. And then, um, uh, got to meet up with Guy and Ike and the whole team after they killed the sh- uh, guy's sheep. And then uh, I got to stalk up a caribou and kill one. And then the next day, um, Ike got to do the same. So it was uh, it was awesome. Yeah, the, the bullet I shot was full velvet, uh, big bezes, huge bezes, really, big tops. I mean, just just a, just a crazy animal to get your hands on on that thing, especially where I ended up shooting them at the, the – tallest peak in the valley that we were um that we were in and so the view from where the caribou ended up was was unbelievable so um it was it was crazy and and that again you know the perspective you gain from that is how tiny you are in the grand scheme of things and how at some level meaningless you are uh, in the grand scheme of things so that was that caribou was, was I'll, I will think of, of, you know, the laughs we had of Guy and Ike and uh, and about the, the, the views from the vista where we we shot that bull. Uh, when I look at that on my wall, too, I mean, it was a it was a great, great experience. And uh, I took about 80 pounds of meat back home in my Yeti hopper. So I'm happy to have that, too. Oh, good work. Um, yeah, those caribou eat so good and that they are so fun to hunt. Like I fell in love with hunting those caribou this past season. I harvested my first this past season as well, but they just, uh, the way they kind of wander around the hills and like every animal just has, has different tendencies and different habits and different ways it, it acts. But the caribou, they reminded me a lot of an antelope, the way, you know, they'll be going one direction and you think you're going to cut them off and you get a mile out there and all of a sudden they'll turn around and go the exact opposite direction. But they're, they were like antelope with 400 inch horns is how I described them. Just these giant racks for, you know, and they weigh, I would say what, about 400, 450 or so. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then these giant 400-inch racks that just kind of bounce and shake. And then uh, I hunted mine in the velvet as well, and just this beautiful velvet-covered antlers. Um, I had so much fun. I fell in love with hunting those animals. I can't wait to go back. Yeah, and I mean, I think, uh, you know, you could hunt – you think about hunting like the Kujuac or hunting in Quebec or up in Alaska, the Brooks Range, where the, you get the migrating caribou and these giant herds – where we're hunting in, in the territories, you're looking at a bull and two cows or a single bull. And oftentimes, glassing them on the highest peak, especially where we were there in August, glassing them on the highest peak in the farthest away valley that you can see. And you're like, well, it's going to take us a full day to get over there to where this caribou is. And, and, and those animals are so adept at moving in that country that they can move from valley to valley in almost no time at all. So, I mean, you really just have to you know, stay on the glass and stay moving. Um, and just, you know, they're there. You just have to run into them. And that's basically what we did. I mean, when we, I shot my bull, we spotted him from across the Valley, probably about two and a half miles or so, uh, got over there, hiked up, you know, probably 1500 vertical feet, belly crawled over and, and, uh, and shot him. And that that's, you know, hopefully that's how it plays out. But I mean, we had, we had about four or five days of tough hunting. I mean, of just shale rock cliffs and, you know, bottoms, uh, river bottoms full of grizzly bears we were trying to avoid. 
just just every challenge you can imagine so you know there again you just i had you know bloody hands and bloody knees and just just uh just got tore up but i loved every minute of it it was uh, caribou live in some of the most amazing north country that we have on this continent so that's i think a, the reason why we all love them so much Right. And they're so fun to hunt in that mountainous terrain, like where you got to hunt them and and where I got a chance to hunt some different caribou, like in the the, the brooks going up into those foothills, which is beautiful country. And and uh, you got to kind of pick and choose your plays or your stocks on those things. It seemed like when I first got there, I was ready to run after any good bull I saw. And uh, it was like I shot myself in the foot a lot, like I'd run out there and then the caribou would be in a different spot. So like you were saying, keep your glass out, keep tabs on them trying to get a direction they're headed and then trying to cut them off or move in front of them because you can't catch up to a moving caribou you know it's like a like a moving elk like you just chasing them from behind it seems like doesn't work you have to see where they're moving to or where they're feeding at or hanging out the basin that they're in and then move on that basin but it's a it's a it's a lot of looking and analyzing you know it took me a few days to get in the right state of mind to to be able to harvest one it seems like absolutely well we were there we had uh literally no there was no darkness but we had 24 hours of daylight um and and so yeah we could have you know had we really been been able to survive we could have hunted them 24 hours a day at some level um and you know a lot of times you know you go to bed at 10 o'clock and wake up at, at midnight and look out at your out your tent and there's a bunch of caribou feeding in the bottom of the valley so um it was interesting for us to try to strategize around that uh, as you said you can't well, you can't catch them if they're going away you got to let them go um in that country you're never going to catch up to a caribou when it's moving away from you and for us, it was we knew they were going to be in the mornings. They were going to come down to feed, but in the afternoons and um, in the in the late evening, they were going to be up high, and you're going to have to go get them, um, or you're going to have to catch them coming down to water to food um, later in the evenings. And luckily for us, it was light out, so we could we could do a little bit of that. But um, yeah, we just had to continually. We it seemed like every bull we spotted was in the farthest ridge possible that you could possibly see. <laughs> every, every good bull we spotted was eight miles away. It seemed like on that on that hunt, it was. I mean, there was a couple times you were marching past sheep country and past sheep sometimes um, to go get the caribou. So it was not. That's not what I expected. I thought for sure it wouldn't be quite as grueling as the sheep hunts um, would be. But in that case, as warm as it was, animals were staying up top. So um, we had that added challenge. Yeah, we had that same thing. It seemed like every bull we saw, we had to cross the river for, and it was a few miles up in or, you know, up on the peak, or we finally got on a, a big herd, um, and, and like you said, uh, you know, it was light 23, 24 hours, and even when it was dark for that hour, it was still twilight, and uh, yeah, we stayed out all night, one night, chasing them, I don't know how far away from from our camp we got, but um, way too far, I think we, we ended up hiking for 30-some hours to get out there, hunt those, and then make it back to camp, just exhausted, um, and that, that daylight, it's a good thing, is you get a lot of hunting hours, and so in a six-day hunt, you get way more hunting hours than you would get in a normal six-day hunt, but you can almost drive yourself a, a bit insane as it's never dark you're not sleeping enough and you're sleep deprived and going like a maniac trying to catch up to those things but what a fun experience yeah i mean i think that was for me you just have to regulate the way you think about it i mean yes you could hunt 24 hours a day 
if you wanted to. But th- these animals are still patternable to the, you know, just like a crepuscular deer, you know, whatever. They're going to move at, at, when it's cool and they're going to um, bed down or get up high when it's hot. And if there's a lot of bugs around, they're not going to they, want to be around that. Um, yeah, so we were just had to stay focused and say, like, we're going to pattern them. We'll glass till 9 or 10. We'll get some sleep. And if we're seeing a bunch of animals moving around, you know, at 10 in the evening, we'll change our sleep patterns and try to do it. But, you know, like you said, you just got to work hard. You got to be willing to move country and pack your tent up and move across three, four miles in the next valley or, or willing to sit at a high point in glass all day in the wind if you have to. Um, you know, you just have to, to know when to sit and when to move, which is um, <laughs> it's not unlike spring turkeys, which is coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it seems like on on all these hunts, like you you have a game plan in your head of how things are going to go, and then you get there, and it's like reality slaps you in the face, and you're almost like to be successful on these hunts, you almost have to evolve or you have to adapt to the to the situation that's presented to you. On on every hunt, you get there, and all of a sudden, you're seeing the animals do this, or you're seeing the animals away, or you're trying to manage your sleep patterns, but it it's always just adapting to the conditions that are presented to you and, and trying to overcome them. But I think that's such a huge part of adventure hunting, is just being able to adapt on the fly. Yeah, that you're exactly right, and I found a lot of the hunts that I've done you just have it's your mindset that wins wins the day because if you go there and you think it's going to happen this way or I'm going to I'm going to make it happen this way or and for me I always you know I always want to start with my bow I mean I'm, you know I'm a bow hunter at heart but I also understand um, that I love the meat and I you know I'm not going to give myself up if if I have a chance to grab a rifle and get it done too so um, there's just you know a lot of people would maybe would not go that way. And I just, I always find that, that I'm going to play it as it lies and, and really just let the situation dictate my, my strategy. But for sure on those hunts, it is all about, and almost hundred percent about persistence. I mean, you get up, sometimes you would wake up at six in the morning and be like, oh, I'll just lay here for another half an hour. Or I could crawl out of my tent in my underwear and glass this valley and see what's there. In fact, a uh, guy ended up spotting the caribou that I killed when all of us were laying around eating sandwiches and and uh, laughing and being being idiots. He ended up crawling out of his tent and glassing up Ike's bull in a you know in a place where we had looked a million times, but that a million and one um, glass over that ridge across from camp, there was a bull there, um, and they went, and we made it happen. So yeah, it's just it's just that persistence and being in the right country, which. Up in that up in that world, I mean, it's such a vast landscape that you're almost always in in country where you could run into a caribou. So you can never never take take a moment off. Yep, you hit the nail on the head. The 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 key to to finding consistent success: persistence and attitude. Those are the two things. Like keeping a good strong mindset, not letting things get you down, being able to pick yourself back up, and then always putting the effort forth. Always looking, always glassing, always up before light. Always uh, you know in in most hunting scenarios. I know a little bit different in Northwest Territories, but yeah, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. And if I 
you know, if I was to say one thing that, that was the key to my success over the years, um, it, it'd be persistence. And, and next thing, I don't know what would be first, persistence or mindset, but they kind of go hand in hand. But uh, so important on those hunts. And it it's so important to enjoying those hunts, too, like the, the right mindset to enjoy the suffering and to enjoy the hard work and to enjoy the effort. You know, you get done from those hunts, and, and that's what you think back and remember. And the, the more you put into a hunt, the more it means to you like your nepal hunt and, and uh like the northwest territories and and same same for me with the you know whatever hunt i'm on the the more i put into it the more days i have into it the tougher it is and then i i'm able to find success just the more that hunt means to me and even if i don't find success i'm able to go home at peace and know that i that i gave it my all i i gave it a hundred percent of my effort and, and and then i also try to enjoy that experience and it, even if i didn't harvest i start thinking about going back Back and the next time and what I'm going to do different to to be successful I I just love immersing myself in that challenge and 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 that's a lot of the fun for me yeah no I, you're 100% right and I think like at, at some level you know when you say hey enjoy the experience or you know be a part of the experience don't be so focused on the end goal and at the same time you're like we have to be persistent and be focused those two ideas can um, if handled you know incorrectly compete against each other but and they may seem to compete against each other on their on its face, but in reality, those things are they work together. If you were you know being a, you know, a persistent glasser and staying up and being willing to move and pack camp, um, that's part of enjoying the experience. That's suffering. That uh, innate ability to just push on to the next thing is part of enjoying the experience. Uh, it's part of diving headfirst into 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 what can be sometimes. Uh, a pretty daunting uh, task when you say go find a giant caribou in this country. Um, and so, you know, you just have to know that the experience in its totality includes that suffering and that persistence and the, the idea that those things are, are your reward, even in the moment, you know, that suffering will make you better um, and that persistence will make you stronger. So you just got to know that um, and go into it with that mindset. And then you come out of it. You never know what you're, um, rewards are going to be when you come out of it. But I have often, especially in those hunts, you know, those mountain hunts, you come back with such a reverence for the natural history of the place, the natural history of the animal, um, the people that live in those places and the hunters that have done it before you and may do it after you. Um, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty exclusive club that are lucky enough to go do those things. So, um, man, I'm happy to be part of it. Yeah, I would say absolutely. Um, yeah, those mountain hunts are special, but you know the like uh, the, there's a lot of fun hunts to do. Like you were talking turkey hunting, and you know a, a, a lot of hunting as well as going on these big mountain hunts or enjoying what's right around you. You know, and enjoying what you have there in Texas or what I have here in Montana. You know, it's a uh, it, it's getting out and enjoying nature at every opportunity you have. So and, and I I I just enjoy. I enjoy different hunts as well. Like I enjoy the mountains, but I, like I also enjoy like uh, I, I saw you went to Hawaii and hunted Axis. I did the same thing this past season. And that experience is it wasn't grueling. It wasn't a mountain hunt, but it was still challenging, like trying to get close to those Axis deer with the bow and arrows. I'm sure you found was really challenging and being immersed in that experience like it was just a. It, it, it was different than mountain hunting, but at the same time, I enjoyed it just as much as I did the mountains. Yeah, I mean, there's less physical hardship there because, you know, there isn't – I mean, I would say 
There is some, but nothing nothing would that would compare to Nepal or Northwest Territories as far as the physical challenge of that because we stayed at the Four Seasons. So, so <laughs> Pretty rough, huh? The golf course, you know, we were good. We, had, <laughs> we, would, we would go out during the day and, and, and crawl around in the red dirt and um, and chase axis deer and then go back and have a nice hamburger. But So, you know, we had that going for us, but what we didn't have going for us is we – um, are not as in tune to the environment as access deer are. So, you know, you start to appreciate the animal in that situation as much as in Northwest Territories, you're kind of forced or pushed towards appreciating the landscape because the landscape becomes the challenge. I mean, caribou are not that wary a critter when it comes down to it um, overall. Um, so you start, you respect the caribou and, who, and where they live and, and, and what they do, but the landscape becomes kind of the star of that show. Um, but with axis deer in Hawaii, especially and where we were on Lanai, the axis deer becomes the star of the show because you, you know, you have a bow in your hand and you've got to get close enough to this deer that has the quick twitch muscle of all quick twitch muscles. Um, and you've got to make it happen. And so that became this challenge, you know, man versus deer, if you want to put it that way, became the focus of that hunt. And, and as we were talking before, before the show here, I just you end up. I have like maybe the utmost respect for the axis deer just because of how adaptable it is to different environments, and um, how in tune it is to me trying to kill it and <laughs> making it hard on me. So, isn't uh, that I, the truth? I enjoyed that immensely. Oh, I did too. Um, yeah, those those deer are so switched on, and I hunted them in a a lot of the the lava rock and some steep country. But you're overlooking the Pacific, and it's nice and warm, and it it can be grueling where I was at. But you're right, the star of the show is the axis deer. Um, those ha- those things have such good instincts, and you had mentioned before evolved from from avoiding Bengal tigers in India, but but they've adapted to that habitat in Hawaii. Um, and, and they just, um, seems like they're one step in front of you until you get, you, you got to kind of get, you, uh, you said it best in tune with them or in tune with the landscape. You got to start looking for the spots, looking for them bedded in the shade and, and then try to make these methodical slow stocks to, to put yourself in range of them. And then even then you can make a perfect shot and those things are so quick, they could get out of the way of your arrow, you know, and then you gotta, you have to start over. But I had so much fun chasing those things around and, and I hunted uh, Maui. So um, we had goats there as well. And then we're doing a lot of population control because the uh, the cattle ranch we were hunt- hunting on, the, the axis deer competed for the same choice grasses as the cattle did. And so, you know, they had to manage it. And the, these axis deer thrive so much in that habitat that, that uh, you know, I, wa- uh, I was told to not pass up any does. Any doe I saw, I was put a stock, but it was just um, – it was an action-filled handful of days hunting those things, and and uh, I just uh, the axis deer is the star of the show, and and those bucks are beautiful. Like those those deer only weigh like maybe 120 pounds the bucks or so, but then they've got this like mini elk rack on top of them, so they have a rack that's proportionally bigger than their bodies. Um, and, and then I hunted them during the rut, which I think you did too, which was a really fun experience, like watching them uh, chase those does and posture towards other bucks and even fight with those other bucks. They're they're fairly aggressive. Um, but but yeah, hunting over the Pacific and hunting those axis deer, uh, again, it's like an experience that I'll never forget. And it wasn't the mountains, but it, it's just something different. I think, you know, the the more of those 
challenges the, the more ex, uh, those experiences hunting different animals in different places and and whether it's there like i just got back for arizona coos deer hunt which i i love to hunt they're all just they're they're different experiences that that, that are so fun to plan for and train for and then and then embark on and and uh, uh try to chase those things around so I, I just can't get enough of it which um it sounds like uh you're built the same as i am always planning for the next adventure yeah, trying to. Lucky enough, if I am. But yeah, like you said, I don't. I, I mean, I, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up hunting whitetails and, and turkeys and geese and things like that. So that that to me is just as well. But when you get over there and you see, you know, this spotted red deer with swords growing out of its head, that that is, you know, um, and I think you know it, they're native to the Indian subcontinent. And I don't think it was just Bengal tigers. I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure they have like Asiatic lions crocodiles and all kinds of and wolves red wolves i believe over in that and that area where they were native to and so they were <laughs> those deer um genetically speaking that are on hawaii you know their muscles and their their makeup were trained by this harsh environment uh in india and so you just it's, it's amazing to see that carry over and i i i i i shot my deer over there at a pretty long distance with a bow, one that I normally wouldn't take. But that, to me, was a better chance than shooting at one at 30 yards that knew I was there. Because that thing would be swimming over to Maui from Lanai by the time my arrow got to where it was standing. <laughs> like there is, I mean, that's what I saw so many, you know, I, after I killed mine, I followed a bunch of other guys around and, and watched these deer just duck arrows like it was their job. And so... I just came to think like, well, maybe he's 80 yards out there, but he doesn't know I'm here. I got a better chance of lobbing this one in there because I know I can make the shot than if he was 20 yards and looking at me. Um, and so, you know, you just you quickly adapt to their abilities. Um, and that's what's fun about hunting access deer. And that's why I think it's, that's one I would choose almost over any other just because the challenge that they present is pretty unique. Oh, absolutely. And you got to hunt uh, mouflon there as well. Yeah, Remy Warren and I, um, we had both killed Axis Deer and we went and chased Mouflon um, in this kind of Jurassic Park-esque little canyon by the by the ocean. Um, it had a bunch of lava rock and, and really dense, uh, really dense forest, really. And, and uh, we pulled two, two Mouflon out of there in one day, which was amazing to me. Um, but, you know, Mouflon sheep being in that country seems... It seems oddly, even though they're exotic and they're not native there, it seems oddly right. I mean, that's, that's when you get over to some of those, especially on Lanai, when you get over some of that rugged terrain on the coast, I mean, those, those mouflon have so many places to hide and there's so many cliff edges and um, places where they live that you can never get to. Um, and so, you know, as, a, as somebody who, who really uh, respects sheep in every way, to hunt them on on an island in Hawaii was was unbelievable. Yeah, and um, it does seem like those animals belong there. Same thing with the goats, the axis, the mouflon. 
you know, in that habitat, uh, they've done so well adapting to it. They just seem like they belong. If if somebody didn't tell me they weren't native, or if I didn't know they weren't native, I I'd think that they were native to the country because they do just belong in there. And yeah, I I really want to try my hand. I think this next year when I go back, I'm gonna try uh, mouflon sheep. We're gonna take a, a ferry over from Maui, and and uh, a couple of my buddies over there have hunted them uh, over on Lanai over there. So yeah, I think I'm gonna try my hand at at hunting those mouflon and some of those uh, huge, rocky, gnarly canyons, uh, jungle-filled, kind of like what you're talking about is the way they describe it to me. Uh, I, I can't wait for the challenger to – I haven't even seen a mouflon over there because they don't have them on Maui. But I, I can't wait to see my first one or see that, that country that you're describing over there. It should be fun. Yeah, I mean I, I don't have in my head the names of any of the uh, fauna or anything that's over there. But you just remember this – specifically this bright green – um, undergrowth, and the red dirt, and the lava rocks. You can't go, you know, you cannot stalk with a bow over there. We ended up walking the, the valley and just walking the roads because that was the only way we could be quiet enough to make any type of approach um, on any sheep. And those those sheep where we were, you know, had not seen a lot of humans or hunters, so we had that advantage. But, I mean, there was really no way to make a quiet stalk. I mean, we, we were really just – really just having to run into them in a, in a convenient spot. Like I said, and, you know, we got cliffed out a couple times and got into some gnarly country. And after hunting deer up in the flats uh, for three or four days, we weren't, I don't think we were quite prepared for how tough it is to chase mouflon in that territory. Um, but, you know, lava rocks and all, it's, it's, it's unreal. Hmm. Well, uh, again, case in point, adapting to the conditions that you were giving, stalking on those roads to be quiet as you couldn't make the stalks the other way. Um, and, and you're right. There are different challenges there. Like uh, it, it is uh, rough country where those mouflon live. But then also, like, how much water did you go through there? I use more water than I use any place I've ever hunted out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just it was where we were, it was uh, very moist and uh there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, hold on one second, Brian. I got housekeeping coming in here. Yep. Um, an hour and a half or so. Thank you. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. No, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you're at a show, and you took a break to do this podcast with me and went back to your hotel room, and looks like housekeeping wants to clean your room, huh? And they're like, how much time? <laughs> I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah, we pick up. I'd rather talk about hunting than sit, be on the trade ship floor, although uh, it's nice in this room. Yes. Um, well, yeah, uh, sure appreciate your time, and um, – Gosh, you just work for such a great company, and I, I can't thank you guys enough for what you do in the outdoor industry. And then also uh, you, you standing behind or supporting you know, my podcast, Eastman's Elevated, and, and just you – know, I'm just a blue-collar bow hunter that loves to go on these adventures. And so for you guys to uh, to be part of the podcast means the world to me, and, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time. But it was really fun to meet you, Ben, and you have a, a new podcast coming out as well that you're launching within the next couple weeks, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I pretty, first I appreciate, you know, the kind words about the brand and the product and, and the people. And, um, you know, like I was saying earlier, uh, I think we just appreciate people that, that have an authentic voice and that care about the communities that, in which they live and, and are passionate as you are about, um, the things they do. And that's what we look for first. 
Um, and we try to just align ourselves with, with those type of folks and usually it works out well if you do um, from that angle. But yeah, from a personal level, uh, starting a podcast called The Hunting Collective. It launches here on February 6th with uh, the first one will be an interview I did um, in Mexico during a Cusier hunt with Steve Rinella, sitting up on a glass and tit and looking for deer, talking about life and our value system as hunters and, and those types of things. So that's a good conversation because that's really – for me, why I want a podcast, just because I have a lot of great conversations with really great people. And, and for me, uh, the podcast will be a catharsis in some way just to be able to express my feelings and discover new opinions and let people listen along with that. Um, you know, just because hunting has done so much for me and enriched my life in such a way that that it's uh, other than my family, just about all I think about <laughs> on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, I'll be privileged to put that on on the internet for everybody to listen to and hope they enjoy it um the huntingcollective.com will be where everything lives and it'll be on itunes and all those things as well i can't wait uh uh, you were built for podcasting so i'm really excited for you to have your own and to listen in so uh yeah congratulations on that and thanks again man it was just really nice to meet you and i i can't wait to meet in person and um good luck on all your adventures this season absolutely man hopefully we'll catch up soon and maybe find ourselves on the mountain together i hope so all right, that's a wrap. Um, really fun conversation with Ben. Uh, it just, uh, I, I can really relate to him on all these adventure hunts and places he's been and kind of his his outlook on, on hunting. Um, but I, I just really enjoyed the conversation and, and really enjoy him as a human. Um, doing great things for the hunting industry and, and great things for Yeti. He started his own podcast, which is really building a lot of popularity uh, the Hunting Collective with Ben O'Brien. Make sure to check that out. And uh, yeah, just a super guy. Um, hope to meet him in person or, or share a hunt with him here one of these days. Um, so so really fun conversation. Uh, again, our sponsor for today's show is Yeti. Just a game changer with their coolers, the way they th- they keep ice longer, their locks for a bear-proof container, uh, all their their tumblers and ramblers which is all their their cups uh, coffee cups and then their thermoses just doing an awesome job always coming up with new innovative products um, and I just can't say enough good things about the company and and standing behind Eastman's Elevated it's just so cool that they sponsor the podcast and want to be a part of it so make sure to give them some love out there guys and then uh, over there at Eastman's make sure to check out that beyond the grid uh, those couple episodes that we have coming out and um, I think they release an episode i'm gonna get this wrong i shouldn't even say but i i begin thinking like oh when do they uh release episodes and i think they release one one per month um so be on the lookout for new ones there uh the guys are, are working really hard at it and um i'm gonna get back over to the office and record some podcasts here and just got a list of, of new guests and and they're making contact with with uh, other great guests as well and lining them up for me. And so we just have um, great things in the works here for, for Eastman's Elevated. And, and me too, like I, I just got back from that steelheading trip, which um, it's just so awesome. It's so unbelievably awesome. I just, um, I love all these adventure trips and that's, that's one of my funnest fishing trips. Like I just can't imagine fishing anywhere better it's just the you're in the rainforest in the coastal rainforest of of washington coast and um there's all these just giant trees and ferns and undergrowth so green so lush and then the the rivers are just this teal blue glacial fed um monsters of coastal rivers and and then they have those 
ocean-run steelhead where you're so close to the salt. Those fish are so bright and fight so hard. It just blows my mind every time I hook one. Um, I hooked a, my nicest fish I caught was like this 18-pound hen that was really bright. And I hooked her, and I was absolutely in for the fight of my life. She came out of the water more than she was in, and just her runs in the water, I just couldn't hold her. I had no control of her. You know, I've, I had a 14-foot, 10-weight fly rod, and, and I could not turn her. I could not uh, change her direction. When she wanted to go upriver, she went upriver. When she wanted to go down, she went down, and she just kept pulling to that other side of the river. And I fought her down for like a half a mile. And finally, I just got to the last pool, the last place I could land her. And before that, she goes over the waterfalls and she's gone. There's no catching her there. And I got cliffs on either side. And I was finally able to just give her so much heat there, like almost to the point of breaking your line, you know, and finally get her in. And my buddy uh, Eric uh, uh, scooped her with the net. Uh, just what a fight, what an experience, but um, I just love being out there and, and doing that, so that was really cool. I know it's not hunting, it's a it's a fishing experience, but um, my point was is that I go and I, I get re- rebooted and refreshed after a trip like that, and I'm able to kind of think outside the box, and I'm able to step away from the podcast and not really work on it, not make many social media posts. And just think about what a great opportunity I have in front of me just with um, this podcast, our following, our community that we're building, and and then being able to get out this good information and have these great conversations. And, you know, like you guys always hear me talk, I'm just always looking to improve and looking to get better, whether it's hunting or my fitness or my nutrition or whether it's the podcast. And so, you know, I had some time to think about the podcast and the direction of it and, and kind of the effort I want to put into it. And I'm just I'm just really excited for it, really excited for the next year and really excited for, for each and every week to bring you guys a, a good podcast with good information. So um, anyways, a little long-winded, but uh, I had a great trip. Um, uh, my mind's all reset and uh, now just uh, back to the grindstone, uh, working on this and working on the podcast. It's not much of a grindstone to tell you the truth. Um it's just uh, it's a labor of love, you know, a handful hours a week to make sure I put out good content. But lining up these guests and touching bases with them and I mean, really, it's the creative side of things that really makes the podcast is coming up with a good theme for the podcast and and, uh, you know, thinking of good ideas and things you can add in and then great conversations, you know, with the soon to be guests, you know, just over the phone doing 10, 15 minutes and and just kind of. I just have an open conversation, and sometimes I don't even have a plan for the podcast, but I, I just touch on things that are interesting to me, and then I think you guys will find them interesting. And so um, just a little bit of legwork that I just uh, need to, to c- keep putting in time and and grow this thing to as good as I can as I can make it. But, um, oh, I've been yammering on long enough. Uh, better end this podcast. Thanks, as always, for all the support, guys, and the messages. I sure appreciate it. And um, keep working hard towards your goals. Uh, gosh, it's right now it's that application season and um, fitness season. I mean, it's really the time where you improve your fitness, you improve your shooting. Uh, hopefully, you draw a couple tags so you're starting to plan for hunts for next year. But I just embrace this time of year. Uh, next up for me is Dangerous Game and Black Bears with my bow and arrow, and I just love that season. So I got a few months of training here. I'm going to hit it hard, and I've been running and putting in miles, of course, like always. But um, I'm ready to step it up again. I just want to add in some really long runs on the weekends and make sure I'm getting in, 
you know, a good 12 plus miler in every weekend just to get my body ready for um, the extreme environment that, that adventure bow hunting puts on you. Um, so I'm excited, working hard, make sure I'm hitting my weights and I'm getting my stretching in and um, everything that, that goes along with keeping your body in tip top shape so you're ready for these hunts. So um, anyways, have a good week, guys. Keep working hard towards your goals um, and talk to you next week.